Welcome to the NASPP's Equity Expert Podcast Series. My name is Kathleen Cleary, and I'm the Education Director for the NASPP. Today, our podcast is entitled High Impact Rewards. Are stock-based compensation plans keeping pace? And we'll be speaking with Peter DeBellis from Burson Deloitte Consulting. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this is actually one of a series of podcasts on various interesting and educational topics, primarily related to equity and careers in equity. If you would like to access the entire podcast series, you can go to the NASPP website and uh, search under Equity Expert. And that's uh, all one word if you want to put in naspp.com forward slash equity expert. You can also subscribe to the podcast series and then you'll get an email whenever a new episode is posted. So that's a great way to stay caught up on the newest. As I mentioned, we'll be speaking with Peter DeBellis, Associate Vice President for Burson Deloitte Consulting. Pete leads total rewards research for Burson Deloitte Consulting and has a deep understanding of the various tools organizations use to attract, motivate, develop, and retain talent from compensation and benefits to worker well-being programs to experience and actualization opportunities. His experience gained as an in-house rewards professional for public companies and as a consultant helps him to understand the critical linkages between total rewards, HR strategy, and overarching business objectives. Pete holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Industrial and Labor Relations from Cornell University. Welcome to the podcast, Pete. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Kathleen. Glad to be here. Well, great. Let's get started. So I mentioned in the introduction, our podcast is entitled High Impact Rewards, Are Stock-Based Compensation Plans Keeping Pace? And our discussions are going to focus around data that was gathered during a recent study conducted by Burson Deloitte Consulting. So Pete, why don't you start us maybe with some demographics for the study that you recently completed? Sure. The big picture, Kathleen, is that this is a really diverse sample in terms of industry, size, location. Approximately 1,200 organizations from around the world are included in the survey sample, and these 1,200 companies represent a really nice cross-section of industries. Approximately 60% of the sample evenly distributed across financial services, technology, media, and telecom, consumer, and manufacturing. So good good cross-section of industries, those four in particular strongly represented. And the employee count of the respondent organizations, the organizations we surveyed, ranged anywhere from 100 employees to to more than 500,000. But more than two-thirds of the sample fell between that 1,000 and 100,000 employee count. And finally, the headquarters locations of the organizations in the sample, about 50% of the time, the organizations were headquartered in the Americas, 40% EMEA, and the balance of the sample from Asia-Pac. Well, that sounds like quite a diverse and a large sampling, so I'm looking forward to talking about some of the data. But let's go back and start with some basics. So when we say that this study focused on high-impact rewards, how do you define rewards? That's a great question, Kathleen. It's actually part of what we learned in the study itself, is how are high-performing organizations these days defining rewards? little bit of a you know look back in time here i think it's fair to say that the definition of rewards has really been evolving in the early 20th century was rewards was simply a, a paycheck for hours worked that week later in the 20th century we began to see the proliferation of 
a wide variety of health, welfare, and retirement benefits. And by the turn of the 21st century, the notion of wellness, meaning primarily physical wellness that affected healthcare claims costs, had worked its way into the mainstream definition of rewards. But right now, as evidenced by our study, we're seeing an evolution from narrow physical wellness to broader whole person well-being. And in the study, we found that high-performing organizations were actually 11 times more likely to have a broad employee well-being strategy when compared to their lower-performing counterparts. And in the study, we also looked at what else could be considered a reward. And we found that in addition to compensation benefits and a comprehensive approach to worker well-being, high-performing organizations have also begun to expand their definition of rewards to include what we termed experience and actualization elements of the employment relationship. These elements, things like learning and development or career paths and opportunities, mentoring, coaching, you know, recognition, many others, are subject to a, a bit of a double whammy. They tend to be harder to value than traditional rewards elements, and they're often outside the span of direct control of the rewards organization. So it's, it's easy to exclude them from our definition of rewards, but we know that workers ascribe value to these elements based on their own personal preferences. So rewards organizations ignore them at their peril. And in the study, we found that high-performing organizations were 1.7 times more likely to have their rewards philosophy specifically include elements beyond comp benefits and well-being. So sort of an emerging definition and one that um, is continuing to broaden when we look at what high-performing organizations are doing and saying. That's helpful, Pete. That gives us some idea what we're talking about. It gives us a little clarity there. So let's move to talk about a little bit of the findings from your study. And let's begin with employees. So how are employees feeling about their rewards programs? One of the overarching findings from the study is that, unfortunately, Kathleen, employees just don't like their rewards programs that much. The big picture of what we found in the study really was a function struggling to keep up in the rewards function. We asked a, a net promoter score question in the survey, specifically, how likely are you to recommend working at your organization to a friend or colleague based on your organization's rewards programs? And the answers weren't pretty. It actually worked out to a whopping negative 15 net promoter score across the sample. So if you're familiar with MPS methodology, you know that Minus 15 means we actually found a lot more detractors than promoters. Folks, at least in this sample, definitely do not recommend their organization's rewards programs. And if you're like me, Kathleen, you may be taken a bit aback by this statistic the first time you hear it. So sure companies give, were. <laughs> they, they absolutely were. And when I talk to, to companies and I talk to audiences out there about this research, I tend to get the, the, the same three questions over and over. So I, maybe I can give you a little more context and see see what you think here. But sure. the first question that people always ask is, negative 15 sounds very bad. You know, who says so? Who, whose opinion is that? And the scary part here is that HR folks do. The survey was mostly completed by HR and rewards folks, who in many cases were talking about programs that they actually administer and, and may have even helped develop. So I shudder to think what the MPS would have <laughs> been if we only asked folks outside of HR. And then the second question they often ask me is, is what does it mean? Right. And aside from the literal meaning, right, the negative 15 means we have our rewards programs have a lot more detractors than promoters. I think it means that in many cases, the rewards function is unfortunately 
actually alienating employees and undermining employment brands. A negative 15 would be a disastrous MPS for a consumer product or a brand. And even taken in the HR context, in all of the other high-impact studies we've done over the years at Burson, with the notable exception of performance management, with that caveat, we typically find an NPS in the positive 10 to 20 range. So negative 15 really is a bad deal by, by any measure. And then the third question, third and final question that I often get about the, the NPS score is, why? Why is it so low? And my take there is that there have been a lot of externalities that have served as headwinds for the rewards function in recent years, but perhaps no two have been more significant than ongoing cost pressures and compliance burdens, compliance obligations. Rewards folks have the CFO in one ear talking about cost trend and expense control, and the general counsel or compliance folks in the other ear talking about regulatory compliance and testing and filing and, and so on. So frankly, the rewards job has been tough enough to get done at a, at a passable and accurate level without even thinking about innovation or evolution. So I think that's a lot of the story here on the NPS as well. That's amazing data. And I'm sure most of those companies had no ideas that employees might be feeling that way. And they're certainly spending a lot of time and effort to not have these rewards appreciated. But I know also as part of the study that, that, that there are some key takeaways or standouts, some consistent findings when you looked at higher performing companies. Can you share some of those findings with our listeners? Sure. I think one of the more interesting themes to come out of the whole study was this idea of employee as customer. So high performing organizations increasingly treating employees as rewards customers, meaning valuing them, caring about their experience, doing business with us, and, and this crazy idea of actually asking employees what they want and need instead of assuming that we know what's best for them. The results of the study clearly showed us that listening to and learning from employees is a characteristic of higher performing organizations. We specifically found that these high performing organizations were six times more likely than their lower performing counterparts to use data and analysis to understand employee preference, for, for example, using techniques like conjoint analysis, conjoint being a, a statistical method often used in rewards optimization studies. So asking employees which rewards offerings and elements they prefer to others, and then using that information to, to optimize the actual allocation of rewards spend. So these organizations are taking skills they've honed around how to investigate and understand their external customers. I think we call that customer sensing now, and we used to call them dating myself, but we used to call that market research. And they're, they're taking these skills and they're applying these, these skills and approaches to their internal customers, their employees. And that means that they're thinking about how employees experience doing business with their rewards function, and they're making it their business to improve that experience and to design rewards offerings with the customer in mind. So they're using personas, journey maps, design thinking, and so on. And in fact, we found that overall, high-performer organizations were 1.7 times more likely to report that quote-unquote employee experience is an HR leader and a C-suite priority in their organizations. So that was one, one important theme and, and one what I thought was a very interesting finding around some of the behaviors of higher-performing organizations around rewards these days. 
Yeah, interesting. And I can see where um, exactly that philosophy, treating your employee as if they're your customer, would lead to a different result and a different thought process behind putting together the rewards plan. So, you know, these higher performing organizations put together a plan. So can they set it and forget it? Well, the idea of, of, of customer centricity or employee experience may sound pretty innovative, at, at least for you know rewards organizations. Another finding from the study around agility and flexibility was more about using existing programs in, in new and different ways and not setting it and forgetting it. In an effort to respond to fast-changing markets and, and disruptive technologies, many organizations today are creating a more agile workforce by joining employees together in, in ad hoc teams of experts for specific solutions or innovations, and then once results have been delivered, they, they disband the teams and reform new teams as new opportunities arise. But amidst all of this organizational agility, their rewards packages have traditionally been semi-permanent fixtures, you know, set it and forget it programs that change at a, at a glacial pace. But high-performing organizations understand that rewards packages need to become as agile and as flexible as the workforce itself if they're truly to support the business and to deliver value to employees. And this may mean leveraging combinations of the many rewards offerings already available to employees. It might mean evolving existing offerings or even developing and piloting new offerings. And as an example, we found in the study that high-performing organizations were 2.5 times more likely to review base pay more frequently than annually and two times more likely to pay out incentive plans more frequently than annually. So good example there of using existing programs uh, in a new way, a new, uh, more agile and flexible way. And in addition to those approaches to, to cash compensation, agility and flexibility in this context can also mean leveraging team-based performance rewards or using non-cash employee recognition programs, granting on-the-spot bonuses to, to quickly recognize performance or behaviors in the short term, and piloting new rewards offerings prior to broader implementation seeing how it works before you commit the whole organization to it, before you set it and forget it, as you said. And maybe some other things such as adapting rewards packages for employees according to temporary roles or team assignments, being more fluid with, with those arrangements and packages, offering curated perquisites or lifestyle benefits, revisiting paid time off or leave programs to support work-life balance or work-life integration, and, and the list goes on, but all driving toward increased agility and flexibility. Yeah, absolutely. I keep hearing terms like um, employee wellness and financial wellness and terms that haven't been used in the past when you think about a rewards plan. So it makes sense that, that they're constantly evolving. So we talked a little bit about high-performing organizations, but maybe you can give us a little bit more about how do those high-performing rewards organizations work? I'll tell you, Kathleen, one interesting finding for me out of the study was around the notion of collaboration. And I think that's a great point to hone in on when it comes to the, the how of how these high-performing rewards organizations go about their business. In the study, we tested levels of collaboration between the rewards function and a dozen other functions, both inside and outside of HR. So you can think of IT, legal, talent management, learning and development, lots of the usual suspects, organizations, uh, functions, and teams that the rewards team would need to work with within a large organization. And we found a positive correlation between levels of performance, 
and degree of collaboration across the board. So, so that's to say that the higher performing organizations reported significantly more collaboration than their lower performing counterparts with all of these dozen other functions across the organization. And one function that really popped in our statistical analysis was talent acquisition. So high performing organizations in the study were four times more likely to report high levels of collaboration between their rewards function and their talent acquisition function. Deeper levels of collaboration with the talent acquisition function in these organizations included two-way information sharing. I think that was the big takeaway for me. Not just rewards folks sharing rewards program information, philosophy, salary ranges, and so on, but a true two-way dialogue with talent acquisition folks being ears to the street, reporting back market trends and data points and prospect and candidate feedback. So a true dialogue and collaboration between the two functions. Those are great aspirations for companies that are listening, maybe hoping to become a more high-performing organization. So as we start to think about winding up the podcast, Pete, any thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Yeah. When I started my career, Kathleen, in, in Total Rewards Consulting more than a couple of decades ago, I guess I'm dating myself, but <laughs> we, had a, <laughs> we had a real laser focus on the data. Who is in the peer group? What are they doing on the rewards front? And what percentile of this data are we going to target? But the world of rewards has changed a lot since then. And perhaps most notably, access to market data, it's no longer a members-only club for employers to which employees aren't invited. Quite the contrary, employees are using crowdsourcing and professional networking platforms to exchange and access rewards data in real time. And they're leaving in the dust, employers who are sitting around waiting for annual salary surveys. So what I'm getting at is that increasingly, the job is just worth what the job is worth. And the playing field for access to market data that tells us what the job is worth has really been leveled. So the, the data has been democratized, as my tech-savvy colleagues would say. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that democratization of data, high-performing organizations are increasingly starting to think about how they're different than their competitors, not how they're the same. So they know that just chasing the median isn't good enough anymore. Employees have options, and certainly in a job market like the one we're seeing in the U.S. and a lot of other geographies right now, they have options, and they're not afraid to exercise those options. So instead of chasing the median and trying to be like the other organizations, high-performing organizations are thinking about what makes their organization and their approach to rewards different? And then they're curating and communicating that as part of their employment and rewards brands. So these organizations are being what I like to call unapologetically different on the rewards front. And finally, they're thinking beyond the what of rewards to the how. By that I mean, how might this program look here at my organization? How will it fit into our culture? How will it support our unique goals and objectives? And I think the real takeaway is that high-performing organizations place great importance upon how a concept or a program might apply to their unique organization, not how it plays down the street at another organization or in a broader survey sample set. And that's what I like to call a best-fit rewards approach versus a traditional best-practice approach. 
Interesting study, Pete. Yeah, and I would agree. I think it's like a lot of areas. You either set the trend or you're dictated by it. So these high-performing rewards organizations are out there setting their own new trends. Well, let me just say thanks so much for sharing this data with our listeners. Very interesting. And I think a lot lot of takeaways here for almost any type of an organization. So I'm sure our listeners will be able to use these guidelines and working on their own rewards programs. Again, let me just say thank you to Pete DeBellis for all the information and sharing his expertise and the results of this survey with us today. Thanks also to everyone who listened in today. And remember that you can access all the podcasts in the Equity Expert series at naspp.com forward slash equity expert. Thanks again, everyone.